Here we go, Monday night. Plenty to get into already as the NCAA tournament has kicked off. Ira took in plenty of it. We've got a lot to discuss. Ira's in studio, and, you know, typically, Ira, you know, something for you is you might go to four cities in one week to see four games. This was convenient. You got to go to one city and see six games. So this really works out perfectly for you. Yeah, it's awesome to go. I love the NCAA basketball tournament. I love, you know, the NBA, you can't do this because, first of all, they don't have the, they can't put them back to back. But because the games are a little shorter, you're able to go sit there and watch four games in one day on Thursday at Orlando. And then I went Saturday for just two and then sat at a sports bar and then watched basketball for the next six hours. So, <laughs> but it was great. I love college basketball. I love being in, I just, this is what I've done my whole life. When I was at the University, you know, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, I could go to, they used to have the regional finals and those things in, in Philadelphia at the Spectrum and go and sit there all day and watch basketball. So I do like the aspect of, and then you get to see the different fan bases. Like the Furman hasn't been there in a hundred years and their fans are super excited. And the uh, Charleston, uh, College of Charleston fans are super excited. The Louisiana Raging Cajuns are super excited. And I sat like in all those sections. So it's not like I sat with the Duke section with Duke people that go that was like I sat in those areas and it was fun to talk to them and talk about their teams and they love their teams and all their players everything so it's pretty cool yeah it's right in our backyard and you got to experience flavors from around the country yes. coming in so a lot of people are already saying that this is like the craziest tournament they've ever seen but you made a point you know before we went on the air when you look at where we're at this really isn't that bizarre 10 of the top 16 teams were either of one, two, three, four, or five seed. It's not crazy. Yes, there are the upsets. The Princeton has the upset. That's great. I like that. That FDU being the one seed, two number one seeds, you know, losing before the Sweet 16. Yes, but it's still. I just I, I knew that the one thing I've said was that going into this there was like 20, 25 teams that could win the NCAA basketball, which I think that might be a little different than years past. You look at these teams, there's no dominant teams, but I thought there could be a little more upsets. I like Kennesaw State was playing against Xavier. It was a close game. Xavier pulled it off, but look, we're, well, we're going to go over these games. But I didn't think it was that crazy. We've had upsets. We always have upsets, and so really it was. I'm not saying it was totally chalk. People look at their their uh, brackets. I'm 21st out of 301. One of mine and uh, and Duke had going to the final four, but I do think you look. The key is look at the top seeds that you think are going to advance, and then you have to pick those certain upsets, and they're hard. I mean, that's what makes it so fun to do. If it was if it was just going to be chalk, then it'd be boring, and nobody <laughs> would do it. So you know, in, in a good analogy you brought up is a golf tournament where there's 125, 150 people in it. So the top ten, there's always three guys you have really no information. I was like, where did this guy come from? And he may not ever do it again, but you don't just see one through ten fill out a golf tournament, right? And even in a even at tennis, which I watch, we have the top 16 seeds. At the when you get to the round of 16, it's not like one through 16. There sometimes there's six guys, six people that are unranked, that are unranked <laughs> in it. Others, it's it's all different. That's why I don't think this is so crazy. I actually thought there'd be a little more upsets. I was waiting for. I was sort of underwhelmed by the amount of upsets in the were, and also underwhelmed by the lack of closer games. I thought some games would be closer to a lot more blowouts. But in general, it is what it's now breaking. What I thought was going to happen is that it's really hard to say who the favorite is in this tournament because. Really isn't a favorite, and there's there. If you want to bet, the, the betting is great on this because there's a lot of teams that you can get like plus 1,000 line money 10 to 1, 15 to 21, which I think looked like good chances to win the tournament. You can follow uh, Ira anywhere on social media at Ira on Sports. We're also going to do something today I don't think we've ever done before split up an interview. We did a fantastic interview with Dwight Gooden. And it was just a little bit long, and it also kind of has two different parts. So we decided to break this interview up into two different se segments, and we're going to start tonight at 7.35 talking to one of the best pitchers of all time, Dwight Gooden. Yeah, I love I, – I was so excited to talk to Dwight Gooden. Um, just for people, we, we had – like we are going to get him for like 10, 15 minutes. We ended up getting him for like 40-some minutes. He talked about his whole career with the Mets. Um, when Dwight Gooden, over a 50-game stretch, if you look in the history of baseball, is probably the best pitcher statistically-wise over 50 games. He was dominant, uh, just tremendous pitcher, uh, just controlled New York. So not only was he the best pitcher in the game, one of the best pitchers we've ever seen at in New York with the Mets, winning a World Series. You can't get much bigger than that. And that's what it was. And it's so exciting. And then he comes and he pitched to the Yankees. So this first interview that we're going to share today is about his career with the Mets. And then we're going to have them later on with the Yankees and the no hitter and those type of things. So that'll be next week. So you will, uh, we'll do that 735 here on Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Big news in New York City, Ira. And this is like, ever since I was a kid, when I was a very young kid, St. John's basketball was kind of the coolest thing in New York City. And it's been 30 plus years since St. John's has been like that. 
this might be the turning point for uh, for St. John's. Well, they got a coach. I mean, Rick Pitino, <laughs> you can say a lot of things about him. He's been at Boston University, Providence, the Knicks, Kentucky, the Celtics, Louisville, Puerto Rico, uh, Greece. <laughs> And Iona, and now St. John, and he's won everywhere he's been. He's a great coach. He's tremendous, knows how to recruit. He just went to Iona, and they made it to the tournament two out of three years. So he clearly, I mean, this is a job. I was surprised he took this job, but it's New York. It's going to be Madison Square Garden. It's going to be fun, and he's great. It's just a perfect hire because he's tremendous. I give St. John's a ton of credit for getting him. Uh, just the, the other story that broke was St. Francis Brooklyn eliminated their entire athletic department, and it's semi-close to where St. John's is, and it just shows you. I mean, I bet you his salary is equal to the entire budget of St. Uh, Brooklyn, St. Francis Brooklyn. So it shows for some of these schools, either go all in and try to win or don't try at all. So, But it's huge news. And, and also Ed Cooley of Providence went to Georgetown. So you had these hires who were by Patrick Ewing. So two schools that really for years, Georgetown and St. John's, who were, when I was little, that was those were the two top teams, have been on hard times for a long, long time. <laughs> they both just signed coaches that they think, Patino and Cooley, that's going to, you know, we'll be talking about them for the Final Four in the next couple of years. Yeah, the only thing bigger you could do in New York City than win a championship with the Knicks would be to take St. John's to the Final Four to win a championship. So if Patino does that, I mean, good for him. He's going to be... He's going to get the key to the city, a statue. It's going to be massive. Well, we talked about with NIL and with uh, with transfer portals and all those things. This could be turned around next year. Like mm-hmm. he can get, he'll be able to get the top. We hear about all these great players that are in New York. He can get them in next year. He can get trans people transferring back. So this is this is. <laughs> I mean, this is we see what the problems Kentucky's had. A lot of people in Kentucky won. You know, the problem is they won Rick Pitino back in Kentucky because better than Calipari. But I think this is a great thing. And also Cooley's going to do it. He was amazing job. Of Providence, I think it's going to be great for Georgetown also. So, Ariette, you're at the at the Orlando Regional. You've been to the Amway Center quite a few times, and you go up there. I have not been there. Never for a Magic game. I've been to the old of uh, the old Orlando, but I'm not for some reason I have not been to this. So one. What was your thoughts on this stadium? Uh, I want to say something. People there like it a lot more than I did. There's th- there's aspects of it I liked. I like it's a bowl, like it's narrow. Like I don't like the hockey arenas, like this, like the uh, core states or whatever, the Philadelphia or the Staples, which has the hockey. So I like that. I didn't like the fact that behind the basket seems like a zillion seats. I didn't like the fact that they had these weird club seats that it seemed like they weren't seats. They were just like these tables that were sitting. I didn't like that. The concourses were nice and wide and open, and they had places where you can charge your phone and things like that. But and I did like you can see the glass from the city it was pretty cool it's right in downtown and there's glass and there's plenty of parking around it and there's restaurants around so I liked all that aspect what I did like is when you go to your seat and you're in your seat and you walk up to the concourse at almost any other stadium you're there go to the concourse go to the bathroom whatever you have to then walk up another like 50 flights of stairs to get to the top like it's a crazy city like it's a fairly new arena so I didn't like that aspect of it so I would say it's like a B minus of a building considering it's a new one I wasn't so blown away by it but it's so funny one little thing is that you go to so many arenas and they have all like all the titles they've won, like in Staples Center in LA with all the titles the, the Lakers have won, or in Boston and, and the TD Garden with all the titles, and even in the Heat's won titles. Mm-hmm. In Orlando, they have two banners on the, their entire ceiling. Like they made it to the Eastern Conference, but won the Eastern Conference Finals. That's it. They have no <laughs> no retired numbers, no nothing. It is it's really barren. Their entire ceiling has no banners at all. A team it. should wait till they get to like five before you start. <laughs> Lifting them, keep them like hidden up in the concourse or something. <laughs> um, I guess a lot of people wouldn't realize this. You'd assume maybe the NCAA tournament has their own clock, clock operators that they bring in, or there's professionals. What's the situation that, that happened here? It was chaos. So Central Florida runs this, and they have, like, I'm someone who keeps statistics for basketball teams, so I sort of know all this ins and outs about how to keep the stats and how to have the clock and everything. But the entire, for all four games on Thursday, then Saturday, everybody on TV saw it. It was a complete mess. They, the shot clock never started on time. They had to keep stopping to reset it. The, nothing was working. Every The horns were blaring in the middle of the game. Like, it was just the middle to the point where it's like we were you were at like at a summer league basketball game and someone said hey to someone's girlfriend can you just keep the clock or you know, whatever that's exactly it was so unprofessional how this was done and it was sort of interfering with the game and even the referees seemed to have total clue like the Tennessee Duke game was just crazy in terms of like they would call a timeout they go to the timeout they come out of timeout which were super long come out and like okay now we're going to review something on the screen it's like you already had three minutes to go review now you're going to start another stoppage I mean the Duke Tennessee game went three hours long which is crazy 
crazy. But I could see that it was gonna go that long because it was just so much stoppages. It was just funny to be in the arena and see all that. And that's what sometimes you know, in these games, you expect everything to be professional with the NCAA, but I think that affected it. Now my friends who were watching it thought the officiating was bad too, and I agree. The officiating was just crazy. Like they were missing foul, like it was inconsistent. I was not impressed one way or another. The Duke Tennessee game was a complete mess, but I, I just noticed the officiating. It seemed like the officials were just not, I mean, they're all, you know, you're not the worst officials, but they just seem to be out of it on some of the games. So let's talk about uh, getting to the games here on Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel. One of the first games, it was early on, and everyone is like, kind of like, what just happened here as Furman went on to uh, to take it versus Virginia? Well, a few years ago, University of Virginia lost to UMBC of the first 16 team to lose to a one. Then the next year, they won the national championship. But Tony Bennett's teams are known to have this slow down, walk it up style. And I'm telling you, Purdue and Virginia, and, and the common theme of those two teams is they like to go slow. And that does not work in this tournament because you're letting another team that is inferior to you. But I'll tell you what, Virginia did not look athletic and they couldn't shoot the ball, which is just crazy. UVA was uh, two for 12 from three. That's it for the entire game. Furman played hard, but um, with 11 minutes to go, UVA is up 50 to 38. That's 50 to 30 with 11 to go. The game's over. Everybody's like, this game's finished. And then Furman went on a nine, 19 to four run to go up 57, 54. And then the, then uh, UVA came back and took a four point lead. Kill Clark with 19 seconds fouled, made one free throw, made it 67 to 63. Again, game is pretty much over. Virginia has control of this game. But Virginia fouled the Furman player with 13 seconds to go. I'm like, that was crazy. Just let him shoot the ball. Like, found the guy who's the line makes two. So they're still up two with 12 seconds to go. They inbound the ball to Clark. Now, Clark is like a fifth-year senior. He's played a million games, won a national champion. He gets the ball, and I was not even videotaping it on my phone because I'm like thinking, he's just going to hold over. They're going to foul him. He's going to shoot, whether he gets 1-1. He goes and does something like you see in fifth grade or fourth grade. Just throws the ball up in the air. I could not <laughs> believe Like, I'm looking at that. I'm like, what did he just do? He just threw the ball there, and then the Furman player intercepts it, and then makes a great pass and they drain a three game over. That was so amazing. I couldn't believe it. And to think that a fifth year senior at Virginia who had all this experience would make a stupid play like that, which was, there's no nothing to say. It was dumb. They had a timeout. Just call a timeout with seven seconds to go. He could have just held the ball and would have been, worst case, would have been a jump ball. Another few seconds would have gone off. To throw the ball up in the air, I, I could, it was unbelievable. What a terrible way to lose a game. The kid from Furman with the shot had missed like his last 14 three attempts too. Just it's like, everything came together for them in the, in the finals. Seconds. And they're called the Paladins, which I think is great because I don't. There's no other team anywhere in the country in the world I think named Paladins, which is like a type of knight. Which is funny because FDU won, and they're the Knights also. So it was a good thing if your name is Knights. It was a good good weekend for the Knights. Uh, San Diego State and Charleston. San Diego State won that game. They I thought they were they played poor. I mean, that was uh, James Young on our show. South thought Charleston would win the game, but they won by six. But again, it was like one of those games. Like after the Furman game, like people were just buzzing. Like we just saw the most crazy upset in the world. You know, we we see a 14 beat a three, and then you sort of like, you know, where are you in that game? And then, but the weird thing about the Amway Center is that game, luckily, the, the game ends around like 5.30. The next game starts at 7. So people, like I noticed this in Greenville when I went last year, you walk out of the arena, you have to go in for your second ticket. You don't get all to stay there. So you leave and then the line, they did a great job of getting people, clear, the arena cleared out and people back in and it was perfect. So I was really impressed because I didn't want to miss the Duke game. Like that's one of the worst thing in the world. <laughs> like I was going to either have to hide in the bathroom or something. So, you know, to, to whatever. So I walked out and they did a great, I got to give the Amway Center credit. Uh, for 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 have for the Duke game was the next game. So uh, yeah, you you had Duke versus Oral Roberts, and I mean most people were taking uh, Duke Duke in this game, but. There was people out there thinking Oral Roberts has a chance to upset here. I wasn't one of them, but there were some people. Yeah, because Duke has had this history of losing. Like in 2012, they lost to Lehigh, CJ McCollum, when they were two seed. When they were three seed, they lost to Mercer in 2014. 2017, lost to South Carolina with, with Jason Tatum. Um, I've just had so many. The last few years, I remember I saw Duke's last loss at uh, in the in the uh, Final Four last year against North Carolina. I mean, that's probably the most painful loss, Coach K's final game that you could possibly could imagine. And then the Zion Williamson game when they lost to Michigan State. Uh, th about three, four years ago, that was impossible that, to get to the Final Four because Zion, like as I said, Coach K is the last coach to ever have a healthy Zion Williams in a game that mattered, and he couldn't. He shoots the ball like 11 times because R.J. Barrett shoots the ball 40 in the game, which is ridiculous. But um, And this was going to be first John Shire after four decades of Coach K coaching. Another coach was coaching Duke. Um, Duke started out, they looked phenomenal. They were up 15-0. Um, Duke had, you know, it was just, they play, like Duke had five freshmen and Jeremy Roach, the player from last year, 
Roach played great at 23 points, and everyone else, you know, played great. And and they held the star player for Oral Roberts, Max Abnes, who was averaging like 24 so top scores in been foot in basketball, only to 12 points. And they had Oral Roberts has a seven foot five uh, center Vanover, and he he really did nothing. Two for eight, six points, six rebounds. Duke I, after that game, it's like wow. I mean, Duke wins by uh, 23 points. The game was over really in the first half. So you're like wow. I'm real, I, my pick of Duke who win the final four. <laughs> looked so I was so confident about it. And then before then after that, uh, uh, the Tennessee played Louisiana. Now no most people had left. They didn't really stay for the Tennessee Louisiana game. And Tennessee cruised in that game, and then in the second half they just stopped shooting. They went time where they didn't shoot at all. And I'm in the Louisiana section, and uh, Tennessee does had lost their point guards to Kai Ziegler, and they were like, you know, just so it's just I think I, they look terrible. I'm like, there's no way Tennessee beats Duke. None. It's like zero chance. I could think in a million years that Tennessee would beat Duke. But we'll talk about that in one second. But going to Saturday. The Furman Cinderella story got put uh, nipped in the bud quickly by Sydney. It was over. I mean, it was 75-52. Sydney. I was in. I, I picked the right section. Like when I was looking for my seats, I didn't really know where I was going to be sitting. So I'm buying my Ticketmaster, but I was in the San Diego State section, which was crazy. Because and uh, I'm there, and those fans, like whenever you're in the section, like these fans, like the Furman section or the Coastal or the Carolina, when, when their fans are where the teams play, they're going nuts. But when their team isn't playing, they're as quiet as anything. So I was in the San Diego State section, and they're going nuts. They love their team. It's great. Now remember, they play in the Mountain West Conference. They're a fifth seed. I think the one thing why this tournament worked out well is instead of being like a seven or eight seed, they really deserve to be a fifth seed. Mountain West had had trouble, but they're a good team. I mean, they played well, and they just they did not unlike what unlike Virginia did. They just wanted to say we're going to blow them out. And this is what I, I my criticism of some of these teams are is that they throw the ball around and they get a fast break, and they're like, "There's Steph Curry, he's going to shoot a three. It's like there's no Steph Curry in this tournament. Like Steph Curry is not playing. He's not standing there. So your three point shooters aren't that good. Like if you have a dunk, if you have a two on one dunk. Just dunk the basketball. Houston did that. Um, I saw San Diego State do it. These teams, they're going to get a fast break. They're going to dunk. And they're not going to let Furman stand in the game and just slow the ball down. Like, you are more athletic. You're taller. You're faster. You're stronger. Just run the score and score points. And that's what they did. And that's why they blew Furman out by 23. Watching the uh, Duke versus Tennessee game, which you did see next, there's glaring differences when you look at the physical makeup of Tennessee versus Duke. Totally. Tennessee was, like I said, I think 40 years old. Like, there were players that looked very, very old. Like, it was a, and Duke is 17, 18 year old players. And Tennessee, I have to give the Rick Barnes in the tournament has a terrible record. And, but I drove in, I listened to a gambling show, and everyone said, Tennessee's winning this game. And I'm like, I cannot see that in a million years. Without their point guard, I thought Duke looked great. But Tennessee came in with a strategy, and the strategy was like, we are going to, the first play of the game, their center, um, Urus Pavsel. I mean, they have athletes from Finland, from they're, they're Uruguay. They're an international team. Yeah, yeah this, from all these different countries. He Serbia, just threw yeah. an elbow at Filipowski. Just threw it, just threw the elbow, knowing that no one's throwing someone out in the first 10 seconds of a game and Filipowski's bleeding and this is happening then they threw another elbow then they pushed another player in the face like they were there they were said we are going to be physical at Duke we are going to be we're going to just come in their faces and that set the tone this Duke is like oh we you know we're you know we can do whatever we want they just sort of backed down and you know Duke only shot seven foul shots the whole game they were Duke was six for 22 from the three-point line they Duke settled just to say we're going to shoot threes even though we're a bad three-pointing shoot team Derek Lively was zero had zero shots. He played 36 minutes. He's seven feet tall. Had zero points, zero shots. He's going to be drafted in the first round of the NBA draft. And he had took no shots in 36 minutes. It was crazy. And it was just one of those things where even Duke, you're like, you're waiting for Duke. It was 27-21 at halftime. You're like, when was the last time Duke scored 21 points in an entire half? And then they come out of the second half. I'm like, Tennessee can't shoot the ball. But then Nick Ahoya there, who only played 22 minutes for the game for uh, for Tennessee, scored 27 points. It was hot. They were draining threes and just then the lead became like 11 and Duke then started taking bad shots and it was just it was just a mess and Jeremy Roach gets in foul trouble it's like one of those things where they would Tennessee was smart to commit the foul and Duke would like retaliate and get the foul and like the refs were missing this and like and I just thought it was just a mess I mean Duke played terrible and the one of the other themes of this game is that uh, Coach K, when he was younger, was, was uh, played under Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight, of course, is the most fiery guy, throws chairs, yells at referees, everything like that. When Coach K went into coaching, I think he was more like, I, I know I'm a disciple of Knight, but I'm not going to be like that. So he was viewed as being a calm, cool, collected, that type of coach. 
But as he got older and he realized, I can yell. Like, I'm Revere Coach K. I can yell at a ref as much as I want. I can, They're not going to give me a technical foul. So I think he started to get more fiery as he got older. And John Shire has been assistant for 10 years, never been a head coach. He won a national championship in 2010 as a point guard for the team. So Shire was more the calm, steady voice on the bench. Now Coach K retires. Shire's the coach. So Shire, I, you know, he's still calm and cool. Now that worked this year. Duke got off to a slow start, and these are all freshmen, five freshmen, and it worked. The team started improving and improving. They played well as a team. But in this game, like you're waiting for Shire, and I'm sitting right behind the bench to start yelling at the refs. Like they're getting, they're fouling our players. He wasn't yelling at the refs. He wasn't yelling at his team. He was calm and cool. And I'm like, this better work. This better work. It <laughs> didn't work. And and I'm wondering, is he going to change? Is that what his style is? Like, it's weird. And I, as a Duke fan, I'm upset because I love to see this team come back. I think this team improved through the year. I think this they could learn from this. Like, Tennessee's 22 and 23-year-olds, these players are smart. They're intelligent. They know how to play. Like, I think this team, they, none of these players are going to be, I just think they should come back. Like, again, for another year, I, I don't see how, like, lively, I, I mean, Filipowski, I think they really would benefit for another year of basketball instead of playing in the G League and doing something because I don't think see any of these guys seeing any significant time in on NBA team next year. 725, it's Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel of Mike Balsamo. Dwight Gooden joins us in about 10 minutes. Despite us, you know, the, the Sweet 16 really rounding out to close to 16 of the best schools in the country, it doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of upsets, Ira. There was plenty of them. Well, the first one, Princeton over Arizona. Arizona was favored by 16. This is a crazy game. You know, Princeton... They weren't the best team in the Ivy all year. Yale was a better team. Yale's been the better team. But Princeton beat them in the Ivy League championship. They used to not have an Ivy League champion. Yale would have been the champion. Now, Mitch Henderson, the coach of Princeton, was part of the 96 team that beat UCLA. But in this game, Princeton out-rebounds. Like, Princeton shot terrible. They were like 4 for 25 from threes. Like, one of the worst shooting percentages. But they tied Arizona in rebounding. And again, just sort of like the Furman game, they uh, Arizona was up like 10. They're cruising along. But Princeton scored the final nine points of the game. And Arizona didn't score in the final four minutes and 49 seconds. Uh, pretty, uh, just amazing loss for Arizona. Poor play at the end of the game. But it's sort of like I said, the Furman game where they sort of caught him at the end like a horse race and they just like, the horse came out of nowhere and won the game. <laughs> um, go through with some others. Penn State beat Texas A&M a 10 and 7. I didn't really think this was that big uh, upset. I think Penn State, who won the, you know, was played well to get the Big Ten Championship, was played well. Uh, well was but the first uh, win since 2001 in the tournament. Okay, okay. So I think that was what, can I ask you a question though? In the game they won in 2001, the leading scorer on the other team is going to be an NFL Hall of Famer. Do you know who it is? Tell me. Julius Peppers. Oh my <laughs> the leading scorer versus Penn State when they lost. Then Friday. Everyone learned how to pronounce Farley Dickinson over Fair, the Yes, weekend. Friday we learned for FDU. They saw FDU and FAU. The thing is that the CBS put FDU and FAU on the screen when they played the next night. And people were like confused. Like FDU, FAU. Like it's so hard. It looked like who's mm-hmm. scoring. You couldn't tell the score. But Purdue, again. Now, Matthew Painter is the coach of Purdue. And they have now lost as a 14 seed. Uh, they lost. North Texas beat them uh, two years ago. St. Peter's was a 15 beat them last year. And now FDU beat them this year. They had a 7'5 center, Zach Eady, who's either going to be the college player of the year or the second, you know, first team All-American. And FDU's tallest player was 6'7". 7'5", 6'7". And, and, and he didn't get in foul trouble. He played 36 minutes, but they, they went six minutes without even throwing in the ball. This is what I'm saying is this team at Purdue is just terrible. I, I just, you cannot lose a game like this. You cannot not throw the ball. You cannot use your size. And they just, they shot, how many for three-pointers? I wrote this down. Like they shot 20-some, uh, 20 26 three-pointers. You have a 7'5". What are you doing shooting? And not just he's 7'5". You have 6'10 and 6'9, throw the ball inside and dominate. It was a terrible performance. And now it's three years in a row that Painter is not going to get fired, but you can't bring, you can't be losing to North Texas Purdue. Now, FDU, Fairleigh Dickinson, didn't even win their conference. They lost to Merrimack yeah. in the conference championship game, and they weren't even. Merrimack's ineligible. <laughs> because they were ineligible because they'd gone from Division II, so they lost to Division II school, and they finished third in the conference in the regular <laughs> season. So they were like one of the worst teams in the country. Their record was just barely 500 in a bad conference. It just shows you how, it's one of the worst losses of all time. It's terrible. And uh, was about the, the quickly uh, Kennesaw State and Xavier. I, oh, I'm telling you, Kennesaw State had their chance, but that's what the difference between Xavier. Xavier plays fast. When they got down, they knew how to catch up. They knew how to fast break and run. I give them credit there. And the FAU Memphis game, 
boy, at the end of the game, Penny Hardaway and his team, the, um, Davis is, uh, was their star player, was just Ke Kendrick Davis, was going crazy and started getting in a fight with another Memphis player on the bench. And then Davis, the one thing, I saw this a couple of times, Davis hurt, twisted his ankle in the middle of a play. FAU had a fast break. Then they stopped it. He's like, stop the play. What You you get hurt. You don't stop the play. Like, the, FAU had a fast break. It was like a key moment of the game. I couldn't believe it. But I loved how FAU, Dusty May, who we had our show two weeks ago, they, they hung in there and went on like a tip-in. Uh, they, they had two tip-ins at the end to score. And then Nicholas Boy made drove to the basket and scored with no time left. One of the the only buzzer beater, that and the uh, probably the only buzzer beater I saw, I think, of the first weekend. But huge win for FAU to win that game over Memphis. I, I was glad that if you went just because they're a Boca, they're here, but also the fact that Memphis was like fighting and screaming at each other. I'm like, they can't deserve to win a game like that. We, anyone to talk about any of these second round games? Yeah, I think I saw Auburn Houston. So Houston, who's losing by 10 at halftime, just totally dominated with Sasser, who was injured. You talk about, you know, street clothes and about load management. Sasser has been like, has groin, a groin pull. People don't think he can play. Comes back and plays 37 minutes. These players want to play this tournament. Like, they, you could be hurt and they're for still sure. playing. I get credit. Um, and then the Arkansas-Kansas win. Huge upset uh, for Kansas, uh, for Arkansas over Kansas. Remember, Bill Self, the coach of Kansas, has had a procedure of his heart, did not coach in the Big 12 tournament, and did not coach the first two rounds of this tournament. So it was uh, Eric Musselman. He's the one you've seen the picture of him taking his shirt off. But I saw him last year beat Gonzaga when Gonzaga's number one. So next year, you see Arkansas in the tournament. They're going to pull it upset. Eric Musselman is a really <laughs> good coach. They play they play great. And then Princeton. At this point, I would not consider Princeton, Missouri an upset because Princeton was – they shot threes and they out-rebounded Missouri 44-30. to 30. So Princeton looked I, – I didn't even feel like an upset. And I love the Texas-Penn State game. Texas is a senior-dominated team just like Texas. I think like seven of the top players players or seniors. But I love what Texas did in the game. They were leading. Penn State came back. They tied it up. And then Texas, who was one for 13 for three-point line, said, we're just going to stop shooting threes. We're not going to take it. And they put their into Deso, their, their, their center forward, and they ended up winning the game. And I give them a lot of credit for saying, we only shot one for 13 from three, but we're going to just get the ball inside and win it like that. So that was good. And then on Sunday, the second round games, uh, Michigan State, Tom Izzo always does well in this tournament, beating Marquette again. Musselman and Izzo, if you see eight, seven, or eight. I don't consider it a huge upset you know, when they're like that. Gonzaga looked good against TCU. I love Gonzaga team. And uh, Creighton beat Baylor. Uh, Baylor just struggled this year. They just cannot shoot like they used to shoot. Creighton played well. And I love Pitt's story, but Xavier beat them 84-73. And Kentucky, a lot of people are bashing Kentucky. This is not the star-studded Kentucky team as years past, but they lost to Kansas State. Kansas State was a third seed, so it was like, and Marcus Noel, that was an exciting game. Marcus Noel had some big shots at the end of the game. And then the, one of the, the final two games was Miami-Indiana. Uh, Miami, wow, they played great against Indiana. That, yeah, I did. was watching it with my cousin, Indiana. They were devastated by that. By Jim Lorenette, I mean, Lorenette. Back to back Sweet 16 appearances for it, Miami. It is it's just impressive. I mean, James Young said, look, Miami is a basketball school now. It's hard to argue that it's not a basketball team. And Isaiah Wong, you know, there's a question whether he's going to leave, if they didn't give the NIL money. They gave the right because he hit those shots <laughs> in that second half. He had like four shots in a row. And then it was nice. But FDU played FAU hard. And FAU, I give them credit for hanging on that game. But there was moments in that game where Wow, FDU, they just, uh, they were catching lightning in a bottle. So how does our Sweet 16 wrap up for this, or start up for next weekend? Well, I, Bama plays San Diego State, and we haven't talked about Bama, but Kendall, Kendall Miller is their star player that has no points in the first game, but then played well in the second. I, I like Bama rest, yes, uh, San Diego State. I think Princeton could be Creighton. I really do. I think this is crazy. But I think Alabama, I have Alabama, I had Alabama going through this to the uh, Final Four. I think they'll go through. F, I think FAU beats Tennessee. I just cannot, still not sold on Tennessee. I hope so. And I think FAU beats them. I think Kansas State beats Michigan State. I think Kansas State beats FAU. But I think I think that and that in the Midwest, Houston, Miami. If you're going to watch one game this weekend, that game's going to be great. I think it's going to be trending. And I have a bunch of pool, pools. And I think both of them, I have Miami in one and Houston in other. So I'm sort of protected. And I think Texas beats Xavier, and then you're going to have my, I would say Houston, I would say, I'm going to say Miami, Texas, and then Texas beating Miami. And then I really like Gonzaga. I like Arkansas. That's team. a good game too. Gonzaga, UCLA. UCLA, going to be tremendous. I think Gonzaga's got Drew Timmy. I love, I've seen him. I go out there and see him once a year somehow. Watch him play in the small gyms. I like Gonzaga. And Arkansas, UConn, it's going to be a great game. I, I think Arkansas is going to pull that upset over UConn. I think, I mean, UConn is like the second favorite in Vegas now to win the tournament. But I, I think I like Gonzaga in, to come out. So I have Gonzaga, uh, Texas, uh, Kansas State, and Bama. Even though I wish it was hoping it's FAU and Bama coming to the Final Four. And Miami. we got to be hoping that they get through. All right. I'm hoping Miami gets through. <laughs> 
We've got about, uh, let's say, three minutes uh, here until we have to get to Dwight Gooden here on I Run Sports. And Ira, we wouldn't be a sports show. If there wasn't at least one mention of Aaron Rodgers, so what do we got? Well, you know, I hate talking about Aaron Rodgers, but I want to say I did listen to his one hour and a half on on Pat McAfee, and it is, I think he's losing his marbles. Like, I listen, like people, you got to sit there and just listen to the interview. You got to get on YouTube. He's announcing he wants to play for the Jets. He goes, my intention is to play. My intention is to play for the Jets, but they have, can't work out the deal. The reason is by June, the thing is that he signed that ridiculous con- that contract last year when the, the Packers thought he was going to be on their team this year. So now to mix the contract, they have to wait till after June because there's like a 40 million salary cap hit. So it's a complete mess. But then he starts talking about going to the dark room and he was saying crazy things that they don't report. But I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work out. I can see why Green Bay is like, we are done with him. But they're going to wait till June and make the trade. And what else are the Jets going to do? Like, nothing. I, it's nothing. It, 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 like You can mock the Daniel Jones contract, but as a Giants fan, I feel better knowing I have Daniel Jones right now, a normal guy as my quarterback, than being a Jets fan in limbo waiting for possible psycho Aaron Rodgers coming off his worst season. It, it, it feels, it's a little safer. If you have nothing to do, just listen to that interview and tell me this is normal. Like It just seems like he's talking about these crazy things about the... You know, I do not need to know. It was five minutes about going to the bathroom in the dark room. That is just yeah. not... It's way too, too, much, too much information. So we knew the Eagles were going to lose a lot of guys in free agency. I thought they were going to get Jalen Hurts paid you know, early, but they didn't. But still, a lot of players are leaving here out of Philly. Yeah, you know, they lost all-pro linebacker Edwards, uh, linebacker White, uh, Jason Hargrave, defensive lineman who played great for them. They lost C.J. Gardner-Johnson, uh, Marcus Epps. I mean, they lost seven of their just play, star players on defense. And even on offense, we got the Steelers got one of their offensive linemen who played really well. And everyone thinks Howie Roseman, he's going to come back. They're geniuses. I'm like, oh, whoa, hold your horses. Like, you're losing a yeah. lot of talent. 49ers only added Javon Hargrave. <laughs> that defensive line is going to be ridiculous. They but took, I just— uh, like, like Howie Raisman, their general manager, like he's not the smartest human being alive. Like I mean, the, I just think that people are like giving the Eagles a lot more credit. Like they're just gonna run, run this back. They're gonna bring people off the streets. Like you know all those things. I don't know if it's gonna work. Like I was shocked by. It. I thought they'd sign some more of these players. Losing Miles Sanders not that big, but losing all these their defense was key. Also, they lost their offensive coordinator and their defensive coordinator. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a whole new regime plus Jalen Hurts pretty much there. Um, to end of an era. Ezekiel Elliott, the worst running back contract in modern history, is finally, uh, the, the, the chapter will close for the Dallas Cowboys. Well, this just comes down to the whole thing with the Steelers. The Steelers, well, two years or three years ago, did not want to sign Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon Bell wanted all this money. He's the only player to hold out an entire year. And it's just started this whole thing with, with running backs. Is like you do not overpay running backs because you can draft them in the draft and not pay them so much money. And giving, there's been no, Henry, Derrick Henry's contract is great for the um, Titans. Short of that, it's hard to see a running back contract that's worked out recently and you just and you just waste so much money on this money. That's why you see them all franchise and his contract didn't work out and Elliot's going to be released yeah. and he'll sign for a few million. But, but again, these running backs want 20, 25, 30 millions. It just doesn't work out. I feel bad because fantasy, they're so important. They're the first players in fantasy. Mm-hmm. But unless they can market it themselves sort of the fantasy players, it doesn't work to, as, a, as a team putting it together to pay yeah, them money. Look at the last 10 Super Bowl winning teams running back. It's rookies. It's guys that are making $2 million a year. It's not... Who was the Chiefs running back? Macheco from the seventh round draft (laughs) pick. (laughs) This is who wins it. Um, (laughs) Tampa Bay, we were wondering what was going to happen. You've been saying Baker to Tampa for like three weeks, and you were right, Ira. I I feel like, I don't know if I'm right about it, but I feel like Kyle Trask is not the answer. And we'll see what it'll work there. It'll be exciting. I hope Baker can figure it out. I'm not not sold. I thought he was going to work out in Carolina. I was excited. So I've been burned already, but maybe, you know, he he has a lot of talent. Uh, He had some good years, and he's still super young. So we'll see. But that's who Tampa's going to, they only signed him to a one-year, $8 million contract. It's not like they gave him a lot of money. So they, they're they probably going to draft someone. I think they should draft Tendon Hooker. The where they draft, I would draft Tendon Hooker and put him in there. I sat with all these Tennessee fans, and I said, I love your quarterback, Tendon Hooker. And they go, we love him too. <laughs> <laughs> Golf real quick. Uh, Jordan Spieth looked like he might be able to make a run there on Sunday. Wasn't going to be. Congratulations to Taylor Moore. Well, Taylor Moore, was this at Valspar, which was in Tampa. And I just turned on you know the end of this, and Jordan Spieth's cruising along just in the, in the lead, and he hit the worst shot in the world 
were on 17, like, or 16, uh, and it was in the water. Like, it almost was in the water, like, in another lake, and and and, and bogey that hole, and it ended up Taylor Moore wins with Adam Shank, and Justin Thomas finished. Didn't, he entered this tournament. It's weird. Some players, the world match play is next, but they entered, uh, Thomas has played this tournament and not the world match play event. So you watched a little live yes, over I the did. weekend. And it might not be a bad idea because the Masters is right around the corner and you know these guys are wanting to win. Well, yeah, because we want to talk about the Masters. I mean, this that's what's great about the majors now. It's because we're going to see, we're watching these tournaments and they're both, and now they're all going to get together. That's why the majors now are more valuable because it's like, wow, I get to see Sergio play. Sergio Garcia has been playing super like the last like half a year. Like people might forget, he was finished sixth in this tournament, but he played well. Um, Danny Lee beat Louis Olshausen, who also would be a great Masters bet also in this thing and uh, DJ Dustin Johnson was 13 with Tyler Gooch uh, Brooks Kepka a little bit better two under 20 finished 24th Patrick Reed was 18th Bubba Watson 20 I'm giving you all former master winners of course and then Mickelson was uh, one under at 30 uh, Bryson DeChambeau was terrible oh I watched him he was he was awful on the, and he shot a plus seven was nearly last last place you know when you finished 44th out of 48 but uh, it was in Tucson I did I do enjoy it was on CV net, CW network so it was easy I didn't have to go online didn't have to stream it and I could flip between both golf, so I was excited to see that. And now Liv goes to Orlando in two weeks, and then the Masters, and the uh, PGA goes World Match Play, then they go Valero, San Antonio, and then the Masters. So we're all, I'm all thinking, like, you know, pick your Masters favorite. This is exciting. Uh, just 30 seconds here before we bring in Doc. What's going on in tennis? Um, Indian Wells, Carlos Alcaraz destroyed Medvedev in the final 6-3, 6 Alcaraz looks like he's healthy, looks like he's ready. Djokovic could not play in Indian Wells, and he's not playing in Miami. Alcaraz is. I'm so excited to come down to Miami this week for the tournament. It's great. I love going to that tournament. Uh, Coco Golf lost in the quarters. I like to see her do better in Miami. I'm waiting for her to break through and win one of these big tournaments here. And Ribakanka beat Swiatek uh, then in Sabalenka in the finals. This is a woman that won Wimbledon and also was in the finals of Australia. But uh, look, these we're not going to have Djokovic. We're not going to have Nadal. We have Sinner and we have Fritz who's playing well. Medvedev beat TFO. TFO got to the semifinals. So I'm real excited for this tournament. It's another Masters 1000. It's a huge event. It's the second biggest. It's the That and Indian Wells are the second biggest tournaments in America for tennis. So it's all, it all starts tomorrow and I'm excited to be in Miami for that. Let's go to Dwight Gooden here on Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. We're so happy to have Doc Gooden on the show uh, talking about this. So, Doc, one of the things I wanted to bring up with you is the Hall of Fame. We just had the Hall of Fame. Scott Rowland got it, put it in the Hall of Fame this past week. Your candidacy, I mean, people think you're in the Hall of Fame, which is, um, you know, which, which you probably, you know, which you should be in the Hall of Fame. What's your feeling about this in terms of, I looked at every site that says, you know, of the top, the omissions, the people that should be in that aren't in, you're in everyone's top 10. So what do you think about wow. getting in the Hall of Fame, you know, any day now with a, with a committee uh, nomination? Yeah, it's all with the committee. You know, no, no offense, and I, and I mean this sincerely, no offense about none of the guys that are in the Hall of Fame. Out of utmost respect for those guys that deserve it. But um, I don't think about it as much until the votes come around and start conversation come around. And I look back at it, and I look at my numbers and some of the guys that are in it numbers, and I say, yeah, I think I deserve to be in there. And they say, well, you didn't get 200 wins. No, I didn't. But if you look at the amount of starts that I had, composed to the other guys' starts, quality starts, first five years compared to, like, Colfax and those guys' five years, I think I had the numbers there. It sounds weird when you talk about yourself on that. But I, I do think I belong in there, but they look at, well, he had a drug problem, drug addiction. Yes, I did. I claim that. But at the same time, I don't think I deserve a life sentence for the mistakes that I made in my life. Um, and the numbers, you know, they speak for itself. So I think, yes, I think I do deserve to be in. They, they, you know, I haven't got the vote, so that's fine. I still enjoy my career because, you know, once I got to the majors, I told my dad I just want to play a long time and stay healthy. I never thought about winning awards. never thought about the World Series. So I got to win three World Series. Got to win just about every award a pitcher can win. But to answer your question, do I think I belong in the Hall of Fame? Yes, I do think that. But it didn't happen. You know, I'm not um, losing sleep over it. But maybe one day it will happen. We'll see. Well, you know, the one thing about your statistics is a lot of these, we're seeing compilers. Like, you know, Harold Baines gets in, he plays along, you know, not anyone's top 10 MVP or any, and then he suddenly is in. Um, you, at the top of your game, was by far the best. Your season in 1985, I mean, I'm going to give these statistics. You just, people can't believe it. 24-4, and 153 ERA, 16 complete games, 8 shutouts, almost 276 strikeouts. 
to show what the shutout, there was six shutouts. All the thousands of games that were played in baseball this past year, there were only six total one. And in one year, you had eight shutouts. And then in a 50-game period, which is amazing, from August 11th, 1984 to 96, you, for 50 starts, you were 37-5 and five with a 138 ERA and had 412 strikeouts. And it's considered the greatest 50-game stretch in the history of pitching in baseball. So clearly, the dominance level that you were at the top of your game, no one's been that dominant. Thank you. I wasn't aware of that, so you gave me some more. <laughs> some ammunition, right yeah. I appreciate that. But, something else you gave me goosebumps by that. Um, that's just something else to say. You know, the numbers are there. And it's, it's good to hear, like, when you guys mention that, and then fans I run across mention it, and a lot of players that are in the Hall of Fame mention that. It's good to hear. Um, you know, I had I had a problem in, in like, well, alcohol and drugs. And, again, I'm not justifying anything. I claim all the mistakes I've made in my life. But, you know, I had a disease. Drugs and alcohol is a disease. Um, and I had that. That basically cut me short from the numbers I had. And like I say, from the top of my game, you look at when I had my addiction, when the problem started, that's when the numbers started to increase. But on the only thing that's kind of unfair, I would say, when you have the type of year that you just mentioned, or the run that I had for those that period of time of 50 starts, everything you do after that is compared to that. Right. And I remember having starts in 86. I remember beating Fernando Venezuela 3 nothing. only had like four strikeouts. And the first question was, what happened? You don't have four strikeouts. <laughs> I mean, I just pitched a complete game of shell against one of the best pitchers in baseball. But when you have that type of career years at so, such an early start of your career, everything is compared to that. That's probably worked against me as well. Yeah, in 1986, you were 17 and six. In 87, you were 15 and seven with 3 2 year, one ERA. 88, 18 and nine, 3 one nine ERA. And then, you know, even 89, nine and four, 90, 19 and seven, 91, 13 and seven. So you, you know, continued a long period of time. You know, it's it's a shame. Like if you're in football, like they would view this. Anybody in football, people, you know, Terrell Davis had four great years. That's all of fame. Somehow in baseball, they try to add up these numbers. Well, if you would have played 20 some years and added more, you know, those things, but. It clearly, at your best, you are better than anyone else, and I think that's that's the strongest uh, case for you, considering how these people with, with sort of like, when even Scott Rowland, people said, well, when I watched Scott Rowland, I didn't see a Hall of Famer. When people were watching you pitch, they saw an all-time great. Wow, yes. Thank you for the, the kind words and right there. So, you know, like I said, again, I'm happy for all these guys at the end, but um, some of them, some of the guys at the end, there's no knocking against the players at the end. I'm not knocking nobody, but I think I've had better careers than some of the guys at the end. With the awards I've won, the, the, the World Series rings I've won, and some of my accomplishments I've had. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, the writers, they have a lot of power and nothing against the writers. Um, and they had to pull to, to decide who goes in and who don't. So maybe down the road somewhere, the committee can get me in. Because I know now, with the way the pitching is, the guy's only going four and five innings. And that's just the way the system is. I don't I don't like the pitchers. So I'm sure a lot of these pitchers can go a lot longer than they're allowed. But the way, this, the, way the baseball system is now, a lot of these guys are not going to get the 200 wins, and how are you going to put them in the Hall of Fame? So maybe down the road, I'll get the opportunity. Hopefully, I'm still here to see it. Um, you know, today I'm healthy, feel great. You know, July gave me three years of clean and sober, so that's the thing that I'm most proud of. But uh, plus my baseball career, especially now that you know talking to you guys and baseball getting ready to start back up, you do think about it. And when the Hall of Fame balance come around, it does cross my mind. Sometimes I think, what could I've done differently if this didn't happen, if that didn't happen. Thing I look back at and say the things that I did accomplish and be proud of the things I did accomplish. Correct. I mean, you just said only two pitchers right now currently pitching have more wins than you or their Verlander and Scherzer have more wins than 200. So, um, but I want to switch subjects to another a topic that's great. I, your son, Dylan Gooden, announced he's going to Maryland over Penn State. I'm a big Penn State football fan. He's a linebacker. You would think he would want to go to linebacker you, but chose Maryland yeah. over Penn State, Rutgers, and Virginia Tech. So you must be excited to have your a four-star uh, son uh, Dylan going to University of Maryland next year. Oh, 100%. I'm very proud of him, his accomplishments, and he set a path himself. He played a little baseball when he was younger, but unfortunately, when his mom got divorced and moved back to Maryland, he set the path. He said, you know, I enjoy football and basketball. He plays basketball a little bit now, but football is my love. So I say, wow. I say, continue playing baseball. You never know. You know, football is my game. But he stayed with football, and then when it's, when it's official, when he signed the letter, well, actually, he signed a letter um, on February 1st. He'll sign to make it official. But when he committed to Maryland to stay home and get an opportunity to play right away as a freshman, and talking to the coach, the head coach, and the um, defensive coordinator, they're going to say, you know, his opportunity to play right away. That's all you can ask for. And the main thing is the academics is good. And I say the worst thing can happen, you get a free education. So take advantage of that. But um, as a player, 
I'm very proud of him. Couldn't be more proud of him and what he's doing and what he's accomplishing and making a name for himself. Well, Coach Loxley has a great program up there in Maryland, and uh, he's going to be playing with two his brother Talia. So, and Maryland's an up and coming team, so they're going to make they're going to do well next year. So that should be exciting to be to be in there. I hope you get to go up to see some of his games. That would be a lot of fun. Oh, most definitely. Um, I went with him a couple this year. Went there. He was on the sideline. I sat up in the stands to watch some of the games. It's a good program, and um, I'm excited about it. And this be the first time. Like I have four boys. Um, a couple went to college, but never got to play. So he gets to play. So. I'm very proud of him. And then uh, two weeks, two weekends, two weekends ago, he played an All American Bowl down in Orlando, Florida. Got to see him playing that, and all his brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews got to come see him play. I thought that was great, great support, and he loved it. So um, hopefully, he stays hungry, gain a couple more pounds, and get to follow the rest of his dream. <laughs> That's great. We're talking to Doc Gooden, legendary base major league baseball player for the New York Mets, New York Yankees, other teams. So you grew up in Tampa. And you were a baseball pitcher when you were little. Like, you just love your dad put you in, and you just love to throw. Uh, talk about growing up in Tampa and, and, and your love of baseball at an early age. Oh, yeah. So the thing was, my dad was a semi-pro coach at baseball. He coached Little League Baseball. He coached softball. He coached women's softball. So as any kid, you know, I should follow my dad wherever he would go. And so when I was smaller, the guys should roll me the ball. They got older, they started playing catch with me. And <laughs> well, I got, got involved playing um, – um, what's it called it? Regular baseball, organized baseball was one of the guys on his team was a little league coach. Drafted him on his team, and I started playing and started pitching me right away. So he got a strong arm, he got a pitch, and then so my dad just told me how much he loved baseball because he back then, you know, you only had the one game a week on Saturdays with Joe Gaggiola, and we got all the Atlanta Braves games on the radio because we lived in Tampa, and we went to all the Cincinnati Red Spring training games. We just growing up around it, watching games with my dad, you know. And, and while watching games with him, he would quiz me. What did you throw here? Why did you throw that? Like, he just knew I was going to be a pitcher. And my nephew, Gary Sheffield, was raised in the same house. My sister had him very young. And he knew Gary was going to be the hitter. He knew I was going to be the pitcher. And so he would quiz his own questions. I didn't know what he was doing. I thought he was watching the game. But he, I remember one day asking me how much do I like baseball. I said, I like it a lot. One day I'm going to be on TV. <laughs> I don't remember that conversation, but he told me I had it. I was like seven, eight years old. So every day he came home from work. We go to the park and we work on these drills. It wasn't fun because he take I'm fine. He take us to the park and um, work on all these drills. But you don't you don't have a ball, you don't have a glove, you don't have a bat. So it wasn't fun. Uh, I remember telling my mom, Dad's making us go to the park, do all this stuff. But we're not throwing the ball, we're not hitting the ball. All these different things. Thank you. All right, thank you, thank you. Um, so we do all these drills, and at the time it didn't make sense. As we got older, it started making sense doing the different drills he had us doing. Um, the one regret I do have is not having a conversation with my dad to find out where he learned his knowledge of baseball from um, because he was way ahead of his game or teaching the game to me. And as I got older, pitching became more of a lot of fun, and that's something I always wanted to do going to high school. And I just found out, you guys will love this, I just found out, like God wrote me, 35 guys from my Little League Park, not high school, my Little League Park, made it to the major leagues. That is, what, what was the name of the Little League Park? Well, that's amazing. Uh, Be- yeah, Belmont Heights Little League in Tampa, <laughs> Florida, off of MLK Boulevard. I, I didn't know there was 35 guys. I know the, off the top of my head, you had myself, Sheffield, Carr Everett, Ab- Abbott Everett, Floyd Yeomans, Vance Lovelace, uh, Tyrone Griffin, Derek Bell. Those guys are top of my head. Um, I'm not sure. The Did you guys play anyway. like the Little League World Series or anything? Did you get enter that? Yes, yes. Little League World Series. I got to play in that one in 1975. I was 10, so I couldn't participate. Then I played in the Senior League World Series in 1979. So I won beat both times. I, I still say today, I'll take to my grave, those guys had to be older than what they said. Because, <laughs> and the reason I said because those guys were way advanced than us. We was, I mean, we got, and plus, those guys don't grow as big, you know, when they're adults. These guys look like grown men when they're 15. So, I, mean, I don't know. Oh. Credit for winning, but they had to be older. Had to be. That is, that is, those games, someone should find videotape of those games. Those would be so exciting. So you go and go to the Mets and you get drafted and, and you were in the minor leagues for, you know, a lot of the people are even stars are in the minor leagues for at least a couple of years. You lasted just one year. You flew through the entire system when you're 18 years old. Yes. And I think a big part of that was because of David Johnson. When I was in Kingsport, David was a roving instructor with the Mets. And I remember I was having a bullpen section with Alex Jackson who passed away, I think, a couple years ago. But he was my pitching coach, and David came over and he was challenging me. He'll say, let me see you throw 
one down and away outside to a right-hand hitter. I'll do that. Let's see a curveball, back to a left. So I did everything he told me, and I was just on that day. And then the next year, in 83, he was a triple-A manager in Norfolk, Virginia, for the Tidewater Ties. I was in Lynchburg. And after our season in Lynchburg, I called up triple-A with Davey, and I won two big games for him in the playoffs, and we won triple-A World Series. And he says, wherever he managed the following year, I'll be on his team. So I'm thinking at that time, you know, I'm only 18, so at least I'll be in AAA. Um, he got the big league job while I was in the instruction league. And just joking, I said, David, remember what you told me? He goes, oh, yeah, you're coming. And I got invited to spring training as a non-roster player. And while I was in spring training, after every start, you know, you talk to the media. They say, yeah, they, the office say you're probably going to AA, maybe AAA because of your age. Me like a kid, I was running David's office. Dave, they said, I'm going to double it, triple A. Dave would tell me. He said, don't worry about it. Let him talk. You're going to make the team. The last day of spring training, I think we're playing the, the Tigers from Lakeland, and we're getting ready to fly to Cincinnati open the season. And he told me, he goes, congratulations, you made the team. Oh, that's awesome. And I was excited, but to see the joy, to share that with my father, to share with him that I made the team, I'll never forget that look that was on his face because it was initially his dream that became my dream. It was just one of the greatest moments that I ever had. And then your rookie year, you're the youngest pitcher to ever pitch in an All-Star game. You see, When you came in, you struck out the side. And I think Fernando struck out the side before you. So I think you were, it was yeah. Fernando and then you, so you had like six strikeouts in a row. You finished the year second in the Cy Young, which everyone thinks you should have won the Cy Young, your rookie of the year. And uh, it was just an amazing 17-9, 2-6-0 ERA, seven complete games, three shutouts, 218 innings. Uh, pitched 276 strikeouts. I saw somewhere where they said that you only made $40,000. So you were 17 and 9, and you made $40,000 that year. Yes, that's true. Uh, they say only 40000 but that was a lot of money to me. You know, I remember being in high school and sharing the same winter coat with my dad. Um, you know, things were tough, you know, sitting in front of the stove to get heat. So, I mean, coming from where I came from, 40000 was a lot to me. I wasn't complaining about that. But one of the greatest things about that moment was throwing to Gary Carter. I remember after three strikeouts, Gary saying, wouldn't it be nice to do every fifth day? Not knowing we was going to trade for Gary that November. And he played a huge part of my success in the 85 season. Just the communication we had, the love we had for each other, and the love that he had for the game, and bringing the best out of me every night in 85. It was just tremendous. But in 84, as you mentioned, no, no disrespect to Rick Sutcliffe, but I thought I should have won this high young that year. Um, I finished second, which was a great honor as well. And the win rookie of the year, when you, when you only got one shot to do it, that probably was my, my biggest reward and my favorite reward that I won because you only had one shot to do it. Um, so that was great. And then the guys that I had on the team with Keith Hernandez, uh, Mike Torres for a little bit, helping me learn the league, helping me learn the hitters, and just being there for me played a big part as well. And I can't say enough good things about the, the uh, impact that Mel Stoudemire had on my career as well. And then 85, we just talked about that earlier in the interview. It was one of the greatest years ever. 24 and 4, 153 ERA again, 16 complete games, eight shutouts, 270 strikeouts. From August 31st to September 16th, you threw 31 consecutive scoreless innings over four games. And then through October 2nd, you threw another 49 consecutive innings without allowing an earned run. I mean, it, it was just tremendous. It's the high, highest quality start percentage for a given season ever. In that season, and you had thirty, you had thirty-three quality starts in thirty-five games. So it must have been just you're pitching. Everyone's going to the games. It's must-see every night you're out there and Chase Stadium, and and you're doing it in New York. It was must have been so exciting to be in that atmosphere and in that environment. Oh man, that was crazy because um, to have that success, and like you mentioned, the success that I had my rookie year and the knowledge that I had my rookie year, and you know, the experience that I had my rookie year was just a tremendous, tremendous feat. So. Going to 85 and having Gary Carter as my catcher, as I mentioned, was great. Um, with the knowledge that he had, definitely helped me. And Gary wanted me, it didn't matter who was batting, uh, who was playing, what the score was. They're going through that. And Gary, like, he wanted me every game. He wanted me pitch a shutout, pitch a complete game. He wanted me to get at least 10 strikeouts. And sometime, if we were winning 10 nothing, he wanted me to pitch like it was 1 nothing. <laughs> Gary played a big part. I mean, he would come out there and get in my face sometime. I mean, we'd be up 10 nothing. The number eight hitters up. He get a hit. He's coming out there. What are you doing? You got to bear down. Let's go. He wanted to totally dominate. So he played a big part of that. Having the fans, you know, clapping when I got two strikes on the batters, they played a big part of that because the hitters don't want to go down looking when I had two strikes because I sent them clapping. And if it was a close pitch, the umpire was going to ring them up because 
If he didn't, the fans are going to let him have it. <laughs> so all that stuff worked to my advantage. But it was just a fun time. And like you say, the expectations, the bigger crowds, the bigger of the media attention, it brought a lot of a lot of pressure. But I suffered the challenge at the time. It was just a lot of fun having great teammates to support me played a big part as well. And then 86, the magical season uh, where you win the World Series. I remember I was at, at, at University of Pennsylvania at that time, and I was in a high-rise building. And in the World Series against the Red Sox, it was like when you go to Penn, it's like everybody was either from Boston or New York. So like people were just glued to their TVs. And, and after you guys won, I saw couches and chairs and tables thrown out of the building. I've never seen so much people with the Red Sox fans were so upset about that. But you. Oh, but in the National League Championship Series, you beat Mike. You played went against Mike Scott in two of the most amazing games. Where one game you were you lost the game it was one nothing, and the other you had a no decision, one nothing. So to, to pitch ten innings and give up one run two times, just amazing. That was amazing, and like you mentioned, going against Mike Scott, who was the best pitcher in baseball in '86, was a tremendous feat. And then facing my childhood idol, my second star, I think it was Game Five, Nolan Ryan, to go ten innings. But that was just great, I know. Uh, I came out of there with no wins. Like people always talk about, you still have no postseason wins. But they look at the stats and the, the games I pitch. I mean, I did my part. And so, I mean, that was great to do that because we didn't want to face Mike Scott in game seven because, you know, he was undefeated and he was throwing to our hitters' head. So we had to win game six. That was like our game seven. Um, and so going into the World Series, obviously I didn't pitch well in the World Series. And again, not to justify. I thought they had a good lineup and they got me, but I was just exhausted from the playoffs. You know, going 18 innings or whatever in those games, I had nothing left going to the World Series after the season I pitched with the amount of innings I had. Gone. So then you you know you finish your you have your a few more years at the New York Mets, um, and then I just want to jump to the time when you came back with the Yankees. And that's exactly where we'll pick it up uh, next week. Fascinating. I'm surprised nobody's done like a 30 for 30 on him yet or anything. Just his personality mixed with the interesting life that he's led. It's perfect for it. And we get to do it here on Iron Sports. Yes. And the next week, listen to the show because the best part's coming up because he talks about this story. I have not heard this story before, but it's the no-hitter story and how he threw a no-hitter. And it's unbelievable. And he said, I go, he, he phrased it, I don't think I've told this story to anyone before. So I can't wait to, to play that next week. We're so breaking news here on I Run Sports. That'll be next week. World Baseball Classic, almost over, Ira. You didn't like it at first. I think you're coming around. You're getting me. I don't know, Mike. <laughs> I'm going to give you credit. I'm, I'm watching the Puerto Rican-Dominican Republic. Now, I have to criticize that game because it's on Fox Sports 1, and they go in the ninth inning, and they leave to Fox Sports 2, and then the ninth inning, Diaz comes in for Puerto Rico, throws three strike, you know, amazing win, and in the celebration, he uh, hurts his patella tendon, and he's out for the year. So just by celebrating, mm-hmm. he's out. But it was an exciting game, but it was a terrible way to lose. I mean, that's the issue about these injuries, but it really was injured playing. He was injured celebrating. Yeah, we've also seen Freddie Freeman pick up a hamstring injury, and Jose Altuve is going to miss the first two months. Broken thumb. Where are we at in the WBC? Well, U- USA beat Cuba in the semifinals, and then tonight Japan plays Mexico. Uh, we're going to get to see Roque Sazaki, a 21-year-old who they say is much better than Otani. So it's like this is he throws his last game. He threw 66 pitches, 21 were over 100 miles an hour. He's 6'4", 203, and uh, his final game he struck out 21 batters on 194 pitches. So we're going to see this superstar player tonight. I can't wait to watch this game tonight. Uh, and I think it's be Fox Sports One, but then uh, you're right. I don't know. If, I don't know what. I think they should put this in the middle of the season. The players yeah. love it. The fans are love it. I mean, as I said, I joked someone who was there at the game. I might go to Lone Depot tomorrow. It's like they are using seats that haven't been used since the All-Star game. <laughs> like, these seats probably haven't worked. Like, it's probably the they're first. Brand new. <laughs> they, no one has ever sat in those seats. I mean, when you're getting 5000 a game and suddenly they're getting four. I mean, the numbers that I've never seen that are going to the Lone Depot part and a chase field in Arizona, which doesn't draw anybody either, they're selling out too. So this is working. I just, and I feel though it takes away from the spring training and there's got to be a better way to do this so we only have like a minute here left Leon Edwards beats uh, Camaro Usman. Is Usman done? That's the rumors now. No, he's not done. Usman was this undefeated number one champion. He loses to Edwards on this crazy kick eight months ago. They rest, they go again in a split decision. Edwards wins. It was a close match. I don't know why they did it at 5 o'clock in the middle of March Madness, which was crazy. But no, I don't think Usman's done. But they're going to have Edwards now plays Kobe Cunningham his next match. But Usman's beat Cunningham twice. He beat Woodley, Moswell. He's beat everyone. So I assume that just give Usman a chance. 
come back, regroup. He's going to come back and he's going to fight Edwards again. Mm, let's wrap it up at racing. Oh, Formula One, Saudi Arabia. What exciting. Uh, Max Verstappen, it, it, the, the Red Bull cars are just tremendous. He starts in 15th place, finishes in second. His teammate Sergio Perez finished first. Everyone else is, you know, they're they're running for, for second place, really. Fernando Alonso and Aston Martin finished third. And the Mercedes and the Ferrari cars were back. But the, everyone's saying this is, you know, Verstappen won it two years ago. He won it last year. And it looks like either he or Perez are going to battling out to win it this year. And what about NASCAR? And Joey Logano. I'll tell you one thing about NASCAR. When you're on these super speedways, you just have to turn on to the end of the race. Like the last 15 minutes, exciting. But they finally got a good race. Logano and Kozlowski battled the last two laps. There was no accidents. And Rex at the last lap. And Logano ends up winning. So it was pretty exciting to see that end of that race. You got a busy week this week. I'm gonna, the Knicks and the Heat are Wednesday, so I might go to that game. I have the World Baseball Classic on Tuesday, and i got to see tennis. So there's going to be going to tennis. So there is a lot of sports. I'm so excited. Next week we have tennis. Then we're going to go to the Final Four, and the following week is the Masters. And so this is a great time. And then we got NBA playoffs and NHL playoffs. So we can start talking about, I cannot wait to talk about Connor McDavid and the Boston Bruins, and can the Florida Planters, Panthers get in, Tim Bay Lightning. So much to talk about. And the New York Rangers. Thank you so much. The New York Rangers and whether the Heat and and excited about the Heat because I'll tell you what, it looks like they might get the sixth, so they get out of the play-in. So if they get the sixth seed, they would have a first-round series, Heat versus Celtics or Heat versus Sixers in the first round in about three weeks they'd be playing. Thanks so much to Dwight Gooden. He's Ira and Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on Sports.